You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of the collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner, uh, volume 211 in the collected works, entitled The Sun Mystery and the Mystery of Death and Resurrection, Exoteric and Esoteric Christianity. Lecture 5, entitled The Human Being as Portrayed in Greek Art, given in Dornach, March 31st, 1922. Today we will recall the forces that hold the members of the human constitution together during earthly life. In the next few days this knowledge will open up perspectives on several cosmological subjects. We know that the earthly human being consists of a physical body, an etheric body or body of formative forces, an astral body and an eye. Capital I. Let us see how we can characterize these four members. The physical body is the result of earthly forces, working for the human being, so to speak. In the time between death and rebirth, we have no physical body to deal with. In last week's lectures I noted that when the human spirit and soul descend from supersensible realms into physical incarnation, they are near death, spiritually speaking, and must restore their inner forces by experiencing life in a physical body. But the body that unites with what is descending from the world of spirit and soul is born out of the forces of the earth. Until shortly before achieving physical incarnation, the descending human being also has no etheric body or body of formative forces. Like the physical body, the etheric body unites with the soul-spiritual members of the human constitution but its relationship to the cosmos is different from that of the physical body. When we study the physical human body, we discover that the forces in it are those of planet Earth itself. When we approach the human etheric body, or body of formative forces, however, we find that its forces are cosmic forces, the forces of the entire universe. In contrast, the human astral body and I contain forces that are not encountered in the external space of the universe. In other words, they do not belong to the world to which the earth belongs. In reality, the earth is constantly attempting to absorb and incorporate the physical human body. In contrast, the tendency of the cosmos is to disperse the etheric body or body of formative forces throughout the universe. From the time we fall asleep to the time we wake up, the physical body attempts to unite with the earth, to become earth-like, to become completely earthly, while the etheric body or body of formative forces attempts to disperse throughout the universe. In the morning, when we wake up and rediscover our physical and etheric bodies, It is as if our physical bodies were saying to us, All night long the earth tried to absorb me. The earth wanted to turn me into dust. 
I remained a physical human body only because the forces of your eye and your astral body had held me together yesterday and on previous days, and these forces persisted through the night. Similarly, the etheric body says, I kept my human form only because resembling you has become a habit. Actually, the forces of the cosmos wanted to throw me to the four winds during the night while you were sleeping and outside of me. Each time we wake up, we must make an effort through the eye to take possession of the physical body again in the right way, because it actually attempts to escape from us during the time we spend asleep. With appropriate training, the eye can learn to sense its own efforts to repossess the physical body each morning, and the astral body can sense how it has to reshape the etheric body in its own image, forcing it back into human form to counteract the non-human form it attempted to assume during the night. We might say that during sleep, the physical body loses the inclination to be possessed by the eye, and the etheric body loses the inclination to assume human form and starts to disperse. In actuality, the shape of the, human, of the physical body is entirely the result of the activity of the eye in the human constitution. Owing to the makeup of the modern human soul, we are relatively unaware of having to repossess our physical bodies anew each time we wake up. We have little sense of the physical body's efforts to escape or the etheric body's attempts to disperse. But suppose that at one time people still clearly perceived the daily struggle between the eye and astral body on the one hand and the physical and etheric bodies on the other. As a consequence of this awareness, people would also have known that being forced to leave one's physical and etheric bodies very suddenly would produce quite different results than would either dying or falling asleep. Under normal earthly circumstances, people leave their physical and etheric bodies because the physical body, whether as a consequence of illness, injury or age, has become so earth-like so determined to unite with the earth that the eye can no longer take possession of it. But what if the eye and astral body suddenly had to leave a physical body and an etheric body that were totally healthy and uninjured? What would happen if this physical body and this etheric body retained the tendency to be possessed by the eye and to resemble the astral body respectively? In ancient times, people realized that in such a case, the physical body would not be able to disintegrate automatically. The physical body's tendency to disintegrate develops only through illness or old age or the like. If the astral body and the eye were unexpectedly forced to leave a completely healthy human physical body and the body of formative forces within it, the physical body would retain its human-like form because the tendency to be possessed by the eye and astral body would still be inherent in it. The human form of the physical body would persist, immobilized like a sculpted column. Because the separation was so sudden, the physical body would not be able to disintegrate, 
and the etheric body would not be able to lose its resemblance to the astral body. In fact, the early Greeks were aware of this possibility. You all know the Greek legend about Niobe, who had seven healthy sons and seven healthy daughters. Proud of her fecundity, she taunted the mother of Apollo and Artemis, who had only two children, although she was a goddess. Niobe refused to worship the goddess, and the gods took their revenge. Niobe was forced to experience the sudden death of her seven daughters and seven sons, killed by the arrows of Artemis and Apollo. As she gazed in pain on the corpses of her fourteen children, Niobe's eye and astral body united with what she saw around her. You are probably familiar with the pediment sculptures that show Niobe turned into a pillar of stone, surrounded by her dead sons and daughters. Niobe had been so full of vitality that she mocked the goddess for having only two children. Because of this tremendous inherent vitality, her physical body could not lose its penchant for her eye, and her etheric body could not cease to resemble her astral body, so Niobe became like a pillar of stone. To the mode of perception common at that time, this imagery expressed a deeply felt truth. People sensed that if Niobe had lacked the excess vitality that prompted her to mock the goddess Latona, she would have been able to die normally, and her physical body would have disintegrated. But she lived so completely in her physical body, and was so full of vitality, that she, rese- that she rebelled against the goddess. The genius of the Greek people recognized that her body was preserved as if in stone, because the eye and astral body had left it so rapidly and unexpectedly. When we look back through humankind's evolution, we find that art always reflects feelings consistent with the mode of perception of the time in question. It would be possible to give many other examples. Let us take another look at the need to repossess the physical body upon awakening, to prevent it from becoming earth-like. If Niobe had been able to sleep, even for one night, after her painful experience, she could no longer have been turned into a sculpted pillar of stone, because during sleep her physical body would have absorbed forces that would have made it earth-like, that is, capable of disintegrating. Each morning the human being must repossess the physical body, and the astral body must reshape the etheric body in its own image to make it assume human form. At a certain time in the development of Greek culture, people had a vivid sense that taking hold of the physical body each morning required the development of specific forces. Because the Greeks knew this and took a great satisfaction in possessing physical bodies, they felt a need to strengthen the forces that take hold of the physical body and the forces that shape the etheric body in the image of the astral body. If we could be fully conscious of the process of awaking each morning, we would experience anxiety about being able to re-enter the physical body in the right way. We would be afraid of not being able to get back into the physical body properly. In ancient times the Greeks were very familiar with this fear. They also knew that the etheric body tends to dissolve into four separate figures each night, one like an angel, 
one like a lion, one like an eagle, and one like an ox. Each morning the astral body has to exert itself to synthesize these four parts of the etheric body into something truly human. The Greeks loved their life in the physical and etheric body. I have often quoted a saying that comes down to us from ancient Greece, better a beggar on earth than a king in the realm of shades, that is, in the underworld. Because they loved physical existence, they longed to be able to take possession of their physical body and shape their etheric body more effectively. Greek tragedy developed as a result of this longing. Aristotle's definition of tragedy, though formulated at a much later time, still clearly indicates that the Greeks did not think of their tragedies in the way that we do. Your experiences may be different, but in my experience modern people think that dramas are created so that when we are finished dealing with everything the day brings, we can sit down for a few hours and watch a more or less exciting presentation of events that are not real, but just dramatic images. This is not how the Greeks thought in the early days of the development of their culture. To the early Greeks, all life was one, and all of their contributions were intended to be living parts of the wholeness of life. In their view, the purpose of tragedy was to help people take hold of their physical body and shape their etheric body properly. Tragedy evolved in a way that allowed the audience to feel fear and compassion. Experiencing fear gave them the strength to take hold of their physical body properly each morning, and, feeling compassion, made their astral body stronger and more able to shape their etheric body properly. Show us tragedies, said the Greeks, so we can take hold of our physical body and build up our etheric body suitably, so we can be human in the fullest sense of the word. The function of tragedy in Greek culture was to help people become as fully human as possible in earthly existence. Of course, this means that the people of these ancient times knew how the human spirit and soul, the I and the astral body, interacted with the human physical and etheric bodies. <clears throat> Aristotle defines tragedy as the imitation of an action that arouses fear and compassion and thus allows people to experience catharsis or crisis. Crisis and catharsis are terms borrowed from ancient Greek medicine. Even as Aristotle was developing the more pedantic aspects of Greek culture, he still sensed the healing, strengthening effects of tragedy. The term catharsis originated in the mysteries, and I have often explained what it meant in that context. Now, let us attempt to understand what it means in ordinary life. When the interior of the body becomes sick or diseased, pain appears. This pain would not be present otherwise. People who are ill begin to sense their bodies in a way that does not happen in a body that is normal or healthy. When nothing hurts, we think we are healthy. When we are ill, something begins to hurt to cause us pain. This pain simply means that the eye and astral body are not hooked into the physical and etheric bodies in the right way. When healing sets in, the eye and the astral body again gain the strength to hook themselves in the right way. They have more power over the physical body than they did 
before healing began. Suppose someone has a respiratory disease. That person's eye and astral body are not properly engaged in the etheric and physical parts of the lungs. When the illness is cured, they are again properly engaged. During the crisis, the eye and the astral body, though not properly engaged, acquire the strength they need to shift into position properly when the crisis is past. What the Greeks saw in tragedy was the inner counterpart of this outward sequence of events. The Greeks felt that if human beings did nothing at all to help themselves, the eye and the astral body would become increasingly estranged from the physical and etheric bodies. They were concerned that they would become less and less capable of repossessing the physical body and shaping the etheric body, and they knew that to cure this weakness they had to disengage the eye and astral body so that they could then re-engage correctly. They did this by allowing the astral body to be filled with perceived suffering or compassion and the eye with fear. The eye became stronger by surviving this fear. Of course, it always did survive because the fear was only an image. The eye that overcame fear instead of succumbing to it experienced a crisis or catharsis which gave the eye more strength to repossess the physical body each morning. Similarly, through compassion, that is, by watching suffering, the astral body gains strength to shape the etheric body ever more exactly in its own image. As the figure of Niobe illustrates, the Greeks saw their art as intimately related to the human constitution and to forces that are meant to work in human development and education. The Greeks were especially concerned with the concrete aspect of human existence, and since Greek times we have become more and more estranged from this concrete aspect. This phenomenon becomes especially apparent when we consider Goethe's early life. At an early age Goethe learned a great deal about the world around him and about how people think and feel. He also learned a great deal about how important and intelligent people attempt to explain the world. But for Goethe, as I have explained before, it was a struggle to grow into his cultural surroundings. We know that our culture has become ever more intellectual in the past four or five centuries, and Goethe was sensitive to the intellectualism that had overwhelmed everything. In title Faust, he expressed his feeling that philosophy, law, medicine, and even theology had become intellectual. Faust studied all these subjects, but the pure thought behind all of them seemed estranged from reality, and he attempted to experience his connection to the spiritual foundations of existence. In essence, this is also what Goethe felt. Of course, Goethe had to concede that modern human beings were becoming intellectualized, which was the whole point of that stage of cultural evolution. <clears throat> For Goethe, however, it was a struggle, because thinking does not embrace the whole human being. Goethe felt estranged from the exclusively thought-based culture he saw developing around him. The young Goethe knew about Lessing, who was one of the people who welcomed intellectualism enthusiastically and as a matter of course. Goethe 
could have encountered Lessing in Leipzig, but deliberately avoided him as being too intellectual and uncannily reasonable. This was not the case with Herder, whom Goethe met later in Strasbourg. In spite of his intellectualism, Herder was full of feeling and arrived at a comprehensive world view that Goethe found accessible. In the same vein, we can also understand why Goethe eventually had to get out of the cultural milieu of Weimar, where everyone insisted on thinking about everything. After a certain point, he was ready to jump out of his skin, although outwardly things were going extremely well for him. He was adored at the court of Weimar, but he could not stand it any more. The whole situation was too much for him. Even Herder, of all people, was studying Spinoza, and Spinoza's work, although it is a marvelous piece of mental machinery, had the effect of estranging people from the real world. And so Goethe, hungering to experience the whole human being, had to get away and go to Italy. By experiencing the Greek art of antiquity, he hoped to discover what it meant to be human in a way that had become foreign to his contemporaries. Essentially, anthroposophy is nothing more than a response to a similar quest. It originates in the longing to discover the true and complete nature of the human being, in attempts to answer the question, what does it mean to be human, and what is our role in the greater life of the world? Through anthroposophy, Contributions to civilization that emerged from a feeling for the human being as a whole, such as Greek tragedy or a work of art, such as the Niobe group, become increasingly transparent to us. We understand that Niobe's soul, that is her eye and astral body, is completely outside her body, in the sphere that is the source of her pain. Her soul has been torn out of her body by pain, but the body remains imbued with the forces of her eye and astral body. Its form persists, held together by these forces, and Niobe is turned into a pillar of stone. Now let us consider the opposite case. Suppose there is no intrinsic reason for the eye and astral body to leave the physical and etheric bodies, but they are forced out because the physical and etheric bodies are destroyed from outside. In this instance, the physical and etheric bodies assume a form that reflects the forces of destruction on the one hand and the expulsion of the eye and astral body on the other. <clears throat> this is not what happened to Niobe when her soul suddenly abandoned her physical and etheric bodies in the shock of witnessing the death of her children. It is what would have happened if these bodies had been so damaged that her eye and astral body were forced out in that case, we would not see the physical and etheric bodies hardened into a pillar of sculpted stone. Instead, we would see the fruitless attempts of the eye and astral body to shape the etheric body. We find this situation depicted in another Greek sculpture, the death struggle of Leokoun. We can understand this sculpture if we fill ourselves with the understanding that it depicts a situation that is the opposite of what happened to Niobe. The physical and etheric bodies are being destroyed from outside and are struggling with the eye and astral body which are being forced out. We can see this phenomenon in the very shape of Leokoun's 
mouth and face and the position of his arms and fingers. Leokoun, sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, is spelled L-A-O-C-O-O-Umlaut N. Leokoun, some I'm, I'm pronouncing it. Back to the reading. It is important to find our way to such insights again, for if we do not, the intellectualism of modern times, although profoundly justified, will estrange us from reality, from a true perception and understanding of the natural world. In the age of intellectualism, this ability has been completely lost. Essentially, our intellectual age has no clue about how to approach the human being as a whole, and has, therefore, lost its standard for assessing everything else. This is what Goethe felt so strongly, and why he could not stand to see intellectualism invading art. He could not stand the whole genre of Corneille and Racine because of the impact of the intellect on drama. Let us recall Lessing's attempts to explain the Leokoun group. With all due respect for the great Lessing, these explanations are very superficial. Essentially, he says that when a poet talks about Leokoun, it is all right for Leokoun to scream, because we cannot see him with his mouth open. But when a sculptor portrays him, we see how he opens his mouth, and this is not acceptable. It is very superficial to say that poets can do thus and so, but sculptors must do something different. With all due respect for Lessing's exceptional accomplishments, we must be clear that his treatment of the Leokoun group does nothing to explain the figure of Leokoun on the basis of the underlying situation, which would require a certain ability to investigate the forces that hold the four members of the human constitution together. Goethe instead turned to Shakespeare, whose work is full of natural contradictions. For this reason, Goethe felt that in some respects Shakespeare spoke for the cosmic spirit itself. This was something Goethe felt very deeply, because he was so aware of the dawning of intellectualism. As you may recall, I have often said that Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet, of course, not the Hamlet of Saxo Grammaticus, can be seen as a student of Faust. Goethe had a vivid image of the ten years in Wittenberg when Faust was leading his doting students around by the nose and pulling his students' legs. Of course, Goethe did not say all this in detail, but just listen to Faust say, Thank God, I have now studied philosophy, jurisprudence, medicine, and, to my salvation, theology. No doubt Faust would have felt very uncomfortable when Hamlet, who had just spoken to the ghost of old Hamlet himself, mentions the land from which no traveller returns. Hamlet's memory must have been exceedingly poor if he could not remember just having talked to his father, who had indeed returned from that unknown land. Of course, intellectuals would never write anything of the sort. I have known such people to say that Hamlet was not written by a single author, that someone other than Shakespeare wrote Hamlet's monologue, to be or not to be, and then the pieces were combined. They say similar things about Homer, of course. It is very easy to quote-unquote prove that Hamlet could have been written by a whole series of different people because it is full of contradictions, just like reality. Goethe felt reality to be very rich compared with the poverty of intellectualism, and it is in this sense that we must understand him. By the way, if you want to enjoy all the terrible contradictions in Hamlet, I recommend reading Rümelin on the subject of Shakespeare. Rümelin was a famous professor in Heidelberg, 
and his essay goes into Shakespeare's shortcomings in great detail. There is a difference, however, between Shakespeare's art, which Goethe experienced so deeply that he called the artist an interpreter of cosmic spirit, and what is passed down to us as science, even in places like Heidelberg. If you compare what Lessing said about Leopold to Goethe's beautiful comments on the same subject, of course, you will find that Goethe came to no real understanding of the issue, because anthroposophy was not available to him. Nonetheless, Goethe made significant progress compared with Lessing's arguments. Goethe's work is full of traces of what I presented here today. For example, his comments on the Leokoun group can be seen as a starting point for what I said about it. We are quite justified in saying that if Goethe's approach is carried forward in the right way, it leads straight to anthroposophy. The end of Lecture 5